Okay, so we just um, started our discussion of Simon Don's in, uh, individuation in, in the light of notions of form and information. We're still on chapter uh, part one, chapter three, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and then we're reading section two. The uh, the passage we're on is starting on page 122 of the translation, uh, and we're looking at the inductive method that leads to the corpuscular theory of light. That's just a summary of what we did before the recording started. So could I, could I just ask, so when you're saying discontinuity, is this in the sense of being countable units then, like you said, so discontinuity in the sense that, you know, they're restricted beings, quote unquote, with, uh, that are different from one another? The discontinuity here is, is that um, you, uh, the, the amount of charge needed to release hydrogen um, from water, for example, you that you can't get like a, a half of that charge or a quarter or whatever so the charge only comes in these units uh, of like if you if you set one to be um the amount needed to cause the hydrogen to be released then you you find only multiples of that one uh unit uh, so one two three etc times that unit uh, rather than having any uh, fractions of uh, of that charge unit. Whereas, if, so if we if we um, started with an idea that electricity was something continuous, that it was uh, like a, a stream of some uh, continuous energy or something like that, then we would expect that you could have a continuous variation in elect electrical quantities, so that you could you could pass from zero to one uh, continuously. Whereas what we find instead in in these types of experiments is that you can only find you can only have um, integer multiples of this unit charge. Um, so the the role of the depositing here is it has to do with the uh, the type of experimental setup that um, that's in question. Um, so you have basically a, a solution in, inside some sort of container, uh, and then you have a, a negative end where the um, the current is is produced, and then you have the uh, positive end. Um, and so the um, the hydrogen will will separate from the water and then be deposited on the cathode, if I'm not mistaken. So the negative end. Right. And then the um, the same thing when you have other substances like silver or whatever, they'll be deposited on one on one side uh, of the of the experiment. So yeah, it's uh, the deposition is just where the um, the result uh, sort of ends up, or where you can observe the um, the results. So hydrogen or or silver or whatever separated out from the solution in which it, it was before. Should we continue reading? And if so. Do you mind if I do that? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, so from one, the top of 123. This initial inductive discovery was followed by a second discovery that reveals the same method and ends in the same result. After 1895, which is the date of the discovery of X-rays, it will be shown that these rays can make gases conductive by creating a conductibility identical to electrolytic conductibility in which electrical charges are transported by ions, this time not based on the decomposition of a molecule, but on that of the atoms themselves, since these ions exist even in a monoatomic gas like argon or neon. This decomposition allows for induction to progress one step further in the research of structures. Stoney's electron remained a quantity of electricity associated with an indivisible physical particle. It now becomes more substantial because the ionization of gases 
requires a structural representation in which the negative electrical charge is freed from this heavy support of the electrolytic ion. Ultimately, the discovery of structures was able to reach a new stage two years later. If we are restricted to measuring quantities of electricity that pass through a column of ionized gas, we can conceive the independence of the electron with respect to any heavy material particle. But this independence remains abstract. The experimental principle is what allows us to safeguard the phenomenon. If, on the contrary, we push the experimental research further by attempting to physically analyze the content of the discharge tube when the pressure of the gas reduces, we obtain the Crookes dark space that pervades the whole tube when the pressure falls to one one-hundredth of a millimeter of mercury. This space, which develops very progressively from the cathode while pressure decreases, in some sense makes palpable the physical analysis of the initially continuous ensemble that was the ionized gas in which free electrons could not be discerned from the other electrical charges, namely the positive charges carried by the ions. At that point, we were able to suppose that the Crookes dark space contained free electrons in transit. The experiments on cathodic rays were considered experiments on free electrons. It could certainly be said that in this latter experiment, the discontinuity of electrons disappears at the same time as their association with a phenomenon, such as the ionization of a liquid or a gas in which they appear as charges of a determinate magnitude associated with the particles. All the experiments conducted at this time on cathodic rays were macrophysical and revealed the existence of electrical charges in transit in the tube without indicating a discontinuous microphysical structure. The experiment cannot be carried out on a single electron, the luminescence of, a, of the glass tube, the perpendicularity of the rays with respect to the cathode, their rectilinear propagation, their chemical and caloric effects, the fact that they transfer negative electric charges, and their deviation under the influence of an electrical and, ma and magnetic field are just a few of the macrophysical effects with a continuous appearance. However, due to the inductive path at the end of which this discovery was obtained, it was necessary to suppose that these cathodic rays were composed of discontinuous particles of electricity, because in this way, the structure of the experiment was taken into account. The electrons of ionized yet still undifferentiated gas in the disruptive discharge, according to the experiment structure, are identical to those occupying the Crookes dark space. The latter are identical to the electrons of which the cathodic rays consist. The electrons of the ionization of a gas at the moment of disruptive or non-disruptive discharge are identical to those transmitted by the negative ions in the electrolysis of a body. Yeah, so some of this is... Um... A little bit um, obscure because it's some early um, electric electrical um, experimentation. So the Crookes tube was developed in 1860 something, I believe, and uh, was used up until like the end of the 19th century. So it's the the way a Crookes tube works basically is a it's a glass bulb, uh, like a light bulb. And then there's uh, an electrical current uh, introduced at one end, uh, the cathode end, and and then you have uh, an anode at the other end, so a, a positive charge at the other end. It's uh, a little bit complicated, but the, the sort of basic principle is that it, it produces a stream of electrons that flow from the negative end to the positive end. Um, it actually flows, the, the electrons flow past the anode and hit the glass wall behind the uh, behind the anode, and uh, cause it to uh, to glow, um, which you can see if, in the chat there. Um, there's the the little picture preview from the um, from Wikipedia. So that's that's what a, a Crookes tube does, um, and uh, the so the the um, second stage here, the the point of of introducing this Crookes tube example is. Um, 
So when you have this, uh, um, uh, sorry, the, the first stage here is the, the discovery of x-rays and the conductibility of gases. After the discovery of x-rays in, in 1895, there's this discovery that um, by uh, shining an x-ray through um, a, a gas, you can um, create a, uh, this conductibility in the gas so that um, uh, in the same way that um, in the electroly uh, um, electrolytic um, uh, experiment, you, you had um, the electrical current produce the conductibility in the solution uh, in the same way you end up in, uh, when you shine the X-ray through the gas, you have um, this conductibility in the gas. This, this happens not only when you have, uh, so it's not just molecular bonds that are being broken in this uh, experiment, but um, uh, the, even when you have a monoatomic gas, so a, a, a gas that's composed of one uh, of, of single atoms, um, like uh, argon and whatever the other one was, I forget, uh, neon, right. Um, so argon and neon um, are monoatomic gases. They're, they're composed of single atoms. Um, and you still, when you, when you spray them or uh, illuminate them with an uh, X-ray, you still end up with this ionization process. So the electrons are being freed from the, uh, the atoms themselves and not just from the molecular bonds. And so this was the, the sort of the first, um, the first demonstration of a, of a subatomic particle. Um, so whereas uh, in the electrolytic um, experiments, you could still understand these uh, unit charges as being associated with some sort of heavy particle, like a, a, a piece of uh, uh, matter that would have a, a mass and everything. Now in this, uh, in this uh, X-ray experiment, you have the unit charge is, is liberated from uh, uh, being tied up with an atom or, or something like that. Um, so, so it gives us the uh, depiction of electrical charge as um, having its own sort of uh, corpuscular reality. Uh, it's something, it's something independent of uh, the atoms in which it uh, normally occurs. The next bit has to do with um, right in the, in the Crookes tube. So you have uh, a Crookes tube. It works with um, very low pressure of gas within the tube. Um, it's it was not quite a vacuum, but um, it's a, a low pressure um, of gas. So uh, it has the the one end that lights up uh, in when the uh, electrical current is applied. Um, and then the other end um, has the, the positive charge, which is carried by ions of, of the gas, whatever gas is in the tube. Um, and uh, you can actually, uh, he mentioned this a little bit later on, but you can actually um, have a cathode with little holes pierced in it. And um, that allows the ions um, produced in the gas to flow in the opposite direction towards the cathode. Um, and then uh, the other end of the um, of the Crookes tube will light up as well. So you have one end that lights up because the electrons are hitting the wall. Uh, that's the anode end. And then the other end, the cathode end, will light up because the ions are hitting the, the other wall. Um, so both sides can light up in, in that version of the experiment. Um, but... Um, in, so in this experiment, um, in, sorry, in this version of the 
you you have these cathodic rays, um, so rays of uh, uh, what what are considered free electrons, so electrons that are not associated with an atom, um, and then uh, you can determine the the properties of these rays. Um, so things like uh, the fact that they um, that they heat up a substance that they hit. Uh, so if if you have a piece of metal in inside the chamber, it will heat up the metal or whatever it is. Um, and the fact that uh, electric or magnetic fields will um, uh, deviate will cause the the stream of electrons to deviate. So normally it will be in a, a straight line. It, the the stream of electrons is in a straight line perpendicular to the surface of the cathode. Um, but then in the presence of uh, an electrical or a magnetic field, the the stream will be deviated um, by the field. Um, so you can look at all these different properties of the, the stream of electrons. Um, but what Simon Dong points out in that second part of the paragraph is that um, all of these properties um, are are just as um, uh, you can account for them just as well um, under the assumption that electricity these cathodic rays are being produced uh, in a continuous manner. So you, you don't need the assumption of, of discontinuity or of, of the corpuscular nature of electricity um, to account for the the straight line nature of the ray or or any of the other things. Yeah, I'm I'm writing the transductive wave. Um, Right. What what was my last point? Um, oh yes, and uh, so the the presumption of uh, discontinuity here comes from the fact that you have um, the you have the electrons are are supposed to uh, uh, according to this um, account of the the process in the Crookes tubes, the electrons are supposed to be released from the the gas in the chamber in in the uh, the bulb. Um, so if we assume uh, that uh, before the release of the electrons, uh, um, they have this corpuscular form, uh, then we have to also assume that uh, once we uh, introduce the, the electrical charge and, and then produce this uh, stream of electrons, they must also still have this corpuscular form. So it's... Um, uh, it's a, a sort of an argument from homogeneity, I guess. It's, it's the idea that there's um, um, the same um, the same nature of electricity is is at work whether the electrons are um, bound in in the gas or uh, free in the stream. Uh, so that's sort of the um, uh, the, re the the mode of reasoning for that uh, experiment. Uh, should I read the next paragraph? Can we consider the inductive method followed in these three interpretations the ex of the experiment as transductive? It is not identical to what appears in the formation of the notion of waves. Uh, indeed, the notion of waves was developed to allow for the introduction of a deductive thought into an increasingly broad domain through the expansion of the object. It corresponds to a primacy of theoretical representation. Uh, it allows for the synthesis of several results that were separate be beforehand. On the contrary, the notion of corpuscles of electricity was, in was introduced to allow for the representation of an experimentally observed phenomenon by means of an intelligible structure. 
At the start, it does not surpass the numerically formulable law, but gives it a representative substructure through which an intelligible schema can be paired with the phenomenon. When we move from one experiment to the other, for example, from electrolysis to the ionization of monoatomic gas, we transfer the same schema. We discover a new case for the application of the previously discovered schema. But the case is only new experimentally and not due to an extension of the object. The electron is always the same, and it is because the electron is the same that induction is possible. On the contrary, when the continuity between visible light and Hertzian waves is established, it, is, it cannot be said that light is made of Hertzian waves. Instead, we define the limit that separates and joins these two bands of the domain of transductivity we explore. Should I read the next paragraph? Uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. The thought that led from Faraday's laws to the calculation of the mass and charge of the electron carried out a transfer of identity. The thought that led from the laws of electricity and from Fresnel's formulas to Maxwell's electromagnetic theory carried out the development of a domain that opens up into a continuous infinity of values. Now we are able to distinguish much more clearly in Maxwell's effort between what was merely deductive from what was really transductive. Maxwell did deductive work when he wrote the, wrote the formula of the displacement current in order to be able to account for the conservation of electricity and join together in a single system of equations, the four laws that summarize the whole science of electrical phenomena. But he needed a veritable transduction when he joined the theory of displacement currents with that of the wave propagation of light. The necessity of the continuous is the direct consequence of the application of the deductive method. Yet, since a deductive invention is necessary for a transductive progression to be realized, we in fact have in the examination of the birth of wave theory a mixture of the deductive method and the transductive me method, rather than, a, rather than an absolutely pure example of the transductive method. Likewise, it is possible to find several traces of the transductive method in the development of the notion of electrified corpuscles. Uh, the discovery of rays formed by negative corpuscles of electricity has also led to the search for rays formed by positive particles or positively charged materials. Sorry, uh, sorry, positively charged material particles. With a cathodic ray tube that has a cathode pierced with holes, we have obtained not positive electrons, but positive rays formed by ions originating from the gas contained in the tube. This is what forms the basis of the study of isotopes with Aston's mass spectrograph. Uh, this research leads to a veritable discovery of a vast domain of transductivity when remarkably the interpretation of isotropy managed to confirm and complete the periodic classification of elements established by Mendeleev in 1869. The classification itself was the result of a vast induction formed on the consideration of atomic weights and the result of, a, of an effort of transductivity oriented toward the periodicity of the properties of known elements ranked by an order of increasing atomic weights. We should note that there is a difference between a domain of transductivity obtained at the end of an essentially deductive process and a domain of transductivity obtained at the end of an essentially inductive process. The first is open on both ends. It is composed of a continuous spectrum of various classified and, uh, and organized values. 
The second, on the contrary, is self-enclosed, and its scope has a periodic structure. It comprises a finite number of values. Right, so here we have um, some, I guess, specification of um, the these three modes of thinking uh, and the relation between them. So we have the uh, deductive, uh, inductive, and transductive, um, and they're all sort of um, tied up with each other. So um, he, he sort of goes back to the last subsection um, and the, the discussion of the deductive method. Um, and, and now he wants to um, distinguish between um, what is properly deductive in the development of the um, wave theory of light um, and then what is properly transductive in that development. Um, and so he, he sets out, um, so he, he says that writing the formula uh, of the current of displacement of the displacement current um, for uh, to to um, capture the conservation of energy is a, a purely deductive operation. Um, so there's a, a one aspect of that development that that, um, that Maxwell does um, that is uh, purely deductive. Um, but then there's a transductive moment uh, of that process when Maxwell um, uh, relates these uh, displacement currents to the theory of light, um, to the, the propagation of light as a, in waveform. It's this moment where the, uh, the thinking, the mode of thinking passes from one domain to another and, and opens up uh, this new domain of electromagnetic radiation um, that's the transductive moment in, uh, in that first strand uh, in the wave theory of light. Um, and then likewise, within the, um, within the corpuscular theory of light and its development, you can find these uh, moments of transductive method as well. So that, um, right, it's the, the passage from the, uh, the negative rays, so the cathode, cathode rays, um, to the, the search for um, a positive ray, so uh, the anodic rays or the um, streams of positively charged ions um, separating out from the gas. And so, um, again, we have the transfer of uh, a schema of thought from one domain to another domain. Um, and, and that's what is the, the properly transductive moment. And then he also, he goes on to introduce this new set of, um, of facts having to do with um, the way that, um, so I, I, I don't know this part um, as well, but in, in, as far as I gather, it's, um, it's the, the way that um, you can use the, uh, the anodic rays, so the rays of positively charged ions, you can use that to um, study the nature of a particular substance. So it's, um, uh, you can, um, if you take an unknown substance and um, create these anodic rays with it, you can determine what the nature of that substance is based on the pattern yeah, I think I agree with all dreams here that while a lot of the experimental discussion is way over my head, it's really interesting how he's setting out the you know the the, the difference between these different methods and 
I was reading the, I think everyone should definitely read it, his little tidbit on allegmatics, which I think is at the end of one of these books um, that was compiled from his notes. But it's just another um, sort of attack or approach to him talking about the theory of operations and what is the theory of operations. And ironically, it, it, it really fits these last few sections because it seemed like the, yeah, again, the intuitive, transductive sort of origins of this whole philosophy for him because in it, it's sort of like notes towards an investigation and he's, no, he's saying, oh, use Fres Fresnel's, you know, examples and use Maxwell. You know, so he sort of has these inklings that these things indicate and, and demonstrate these forms of thinking. But um, I just like how, I guess that what I'm trying to extract from this the best that I can is there's a, there's a bit in that allegmatics piece where he's talking about He's again going back to the idea of analogy and how analogical thought establishes a relation between two terms, but it's but it's only able to do that because thought itself is its own kind of mediation between an operation and a structure in the being who's thinking in the first place. So thought is sort of we've been talking about individual milieu a lot, but he kind of talks about thought as that milieu in that essay that is able to create the the relation between these these different things that are being discussed and and he even criticizes you know we can go into another time uh what he calls bergsonian intuition in that essay but but his point is he for it not to be a metaphor thought itself as we're saying it has to have a real transductive sort of capability and making making thought a kind of ground or uh, i see i think maybe he says elsewhere topology of the real rather than something that is separate from it, you know, which I, I know that sounds quite, it sounds like I'm plugging in terms, Simone Dionne in terms here, but I have a feeling it it's, does somewhat make sense. Yeah, he, he's stated a number of times that we've seen so far, um, the way that thought has to be understood as a process of individuation um, so that we know individuation uh, by individuating in our knowledge. Um, uh, undergoing uh, a process of individuation in our knowledge. Um, and so, um, yeah, so because of that, we have to understand the thinking subject as part of a, a larger system uh, that is undergoing individuation rather than as a, a sort of abstract self-contained substance, which uh, then has to have some sort of um, uh, external relation with the object known. Um, I just wanted to uh, finish on the um, the periodic table because I think this is an important example for him. Um, so the the way that um, Mendeleev uh, develops the periodic table is just by um, uh, the atomic number uh, of the or sorry atomic weights of the different substances, and he he sort of discovers this periodic structure uh, of of these uh, atomic weights so that. Um, you find that uh, um, substances, elements that have these uh, different properties or that have um, sim similar properties recur at regular intervals if you um, arrange the, the elements in order of atomic weight. Um, and, and so he, he sort of comes across this uh, periodic structure of the elements, um, but he doesn't have any uh, real, he doesn't have an account of what the, the basis of that periodicity is. Um, and uh, and so you you can regard this as sort of a, just um, uh, an external classification of substances. It's it's just something that um, helps us to organize our our knowledge of 
elements or something like that. Um, but what this uh, uh, the Aston mass spectrograph what it what it does is gives you an, an independent confirmation of the um, uh, of the the periodic structure of the elements. So you have a an alternate means of accessing um, the uh, the the pattern of uh, of elements, and you find that they the these two independent means line up with each other. So that confirms this periodic uh, periodic table structure of the elements. Uh, and then it's only in the 20th century um, that uh, some of the uh, basis for the the periodic structure is. Um, uh, made clear through uh, subatomic uh, physics. So yeah, that's that's the sort of the role of this uh, the periodicity. And and he he states so he he makes a distinction between um, the domain of transduction that appears at the end of the deductive process uh, and the do, the domain of transductivity that appears at the end of an inductive process uh, and. And so the, the electromagnetic spectrum is characteristic of um, the domain that appears at the end of a, um, a deductive process. In, so it's an open-ended uh, domain. So it, it's open at, at both ends. Uh, you can have um, electromagnetic radiation of any wavelength. There's no maximum or minimum. Um, um, and then uh, on the contrary, the... Uh, domain of transductivity that appears at the end of an inductive process is is uh, closed and has this periodic structure. It has a, a finite set of values um, that um, that can appear. Um, so that there's this difference of structure of, of these domains depending on which mode of thinking they, it comes from. Okay, so um, that's the end of that section. Uh, so we're going to go on to section three. Um, and if you thought the... Um, physics stuff in the last section was hard, then uh, you'll be in for a treat in this section because we're going to be talking about um, relativity first and then quantum mechanics, um, and in particular about um, this alternate interpretation of quantum mechanics known as the double solution theory. Um, so we'll, we'll go into that more when we, when we get there. But um, the, first, uh, the first bit is about um, relativity uh, and how it relates to the notion of individuation. Um, so I'll read the first couple paragraphs here. So section three, the, the non-substantial individual information and compatibility. Subsection one, relativistic conception and the notion of physical individuation. One of the most difficult problems of reflexive thought is the problem of the relation that can be established between these two results of transductivity. If transductivity conducted based on deduction led to the same results as one conducted based on induction, reflection could be reduced to a search for the compatibility between these two types of results, which are acknowledged as legitimately homogeneous. If, on the contrary, a hiatus remains between these two types of results, reflection faces this hiatus as a problem, for it is neither possible to classify it in a continuous transductivity nor localize it in a periodic transductivity. The invention of a reflexive transductivity will then be necessary. The fourth stage of inductive research relative to the corpuscle of negative electricity presents the same characteristic as the previous three, but in a certain sense it introduces the elementary quantity of electricity in the individual state, not in its visible corpuscular reality but through the discontinuous effect that it produces when it is combined with a very fine material particle. 
Here still, we see the discontinuity of electricity manifested by a situation where variations of the charge of material particles are produced. The electron is not grasped directly in itself as an individualized particle. Millikan's experiment, in fact, consists in introducing between the plateaus of a condenser very tiny drops of a non-volatile liquid, oil, mercury. These drops are electrified by their passage into the atomizer that produces them. In the absence of a field between the condenser's electrodes, they fall slowly. When a field exists, the, the movement will accelerate or slow down and the variation of speed can be measured. Yet by ionizing the air included between the plateaus, we observe that the speed of a given drop undergoes abrupt variations from one moment to the next. These variations are interpreted by admitting that the charge of the drop varies when it encounters one of the gas's ions. The measurements show that the captured charges are simple multiples of an elementary charge, equivalent to 4.802 by 10 to the minus 10 electrostatic units. This experiment is complemented by those in which the electron intervenes through the discontinuity of its charge. Let us nevertheless note that this discovery of the corpuscular nature of electricity allows a mystery to remain. The dissymmetry between positive electricity and negative electricity, which cannot by any means be predicted inductively in the corpuscular theory. Positive electricity would never be present in the free state, whereas negative electricity is present in the free state. Indeed, there is no structural reason for a corpuscle to be positive or negative. A qualification of the corpuscle cannot be easily conceived. Quality appears in the different modes of the possible combinations of elementary corpuscles, but it cannot be easily conceived at the level of this simple structural element that the corpuscle is. Here we come up against one of the limits of inductive thought. Its need for simple representative structures leads it to consider quality as something irrational. Quality resists inductive identification. However, since the 18th century, experimentation has indicated the qualitative differences of vitreous electricity and resinous electricity. In order to reduce the element of irrationality, it would be necessary to, to be able to transform the specific qualitative difference into a clear structural difference. But also, since induction tends toward the simple element, it also tends toward the identification of all the elements with respect to one another. After the discovery of the fact that negative electricity is a universal constituent of matter, we have been able to believe that all matter is made of electricity. In this sense, induction through identification would have consummated science. Chemistry and physics would have become a generalized electronics. But reduction to absolute identity had been impossible because it could not remove the dissymmetry between two forms or species of electricity. It has indeed been possible to consider that a charge of positive electricity is nothing but a whole of potential created by the departure of an electron. But on the other hand, we then are surpassing the limits of induction seeking the simple structural element. And on the other hand, we are supposing the reality of a material support made of a substance other than negative electricity. For if all matter were constituted by negative electricity, the departure of an electron could never create a whole of potential that would manifest as a positive charge equal in absolute value to the electron, but with a contrary sign. The veritable limit of induction is plurality in its simplest and most difficult form to cross, heterogeneity. It is starting from the moment when inductive thought is faced with this heterogeneity that it must resort to transductive thought. But when it encounters the results of deductive thought, whose limits it, find, it also finds at a certain point. Inductive thought is found lacking when a representation of the pure discontinuous is insufficient. Deductive thought is found lacking when a representation of the pure continuous is also found lacking. This is why neither of these two modes of thought can lead to a complete representation of the physical individual. The physical individual then has recourse to the invention of different systems of compatibility for the methods or the results. 
But such epistemological conditions involve a necessary critique of knowledge fated to determine which degree of reality can be apprehended through the invention of a system of compatibility. Right, and uh, Angus has posted in the chat um, some uh, description and, and an image of the uh, Millikan experiment. So that's that's very helpful. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so my that's my understanding as well. The uh, the sort of um, value of this experiment is that it allowed to measure the charge of a, a single electron, um, so that you you give a greater reality to the notion of um, an electron as uh, a free. Uh, uh, sorry, as an independent um, um, uh, unit of electric charge, but but also as a, a physical particle, which is um, capable of existing in a free state. Um, and then the next bit here is um, sort of the, the obstacle at which this um, um, inductive thinking reaches when we come to think about the, um, the uh, difference between positive and negative electricity. So we, um, any sort of, the, the, the basic principle of corpuscular thinking or the strategy of corpuscular thinking is to always reduce any qualitative difference to um, some sort of arrangement of, uh, of uh, corpuscles. So the, um, the corpuscles themselves would not have any um, sort of uh, intrinsic qualities, but the combination of these corpuscles in a certain manner would produce qualities that we can observe at, a, at the macrophysical level. That's the, the sort of general strategy of uh, corpuscular thinking. And uh, the, the problem or the obstacle that um, you run into is that the uh, distinction between positive and negative electricity is, is this qualitative distinction that remains at the, the microscopic level so that um, it's not really possible to um, uh, sort of re reduce the qualitative distinction to some sort of arrangement of corpuscles because your your um, your corpuscles of electricity, your electrons um, are already characterized by this qualitative distinction of, of positive versus negative electricity. Um, and so we have this uh, um, attempt to identify um, matter with electricity so that everything would be made up of electrical charges, um, but this heterogeneity of the two forms of electricity, positive and negative, um, uh, sort of resists that reduction. Um, and then one, so one possible uh, or one attempt to get around this difficulty is to say that positive electricity would really, or what, what is called positive electricity would really just be um, a, a whole of potential. So it's the, the absence of a negative electricity. Um, uh, and um, this, uh, Simon Do argues that this um, account doesn't really work because uh, if everything was just made up of negative electricity, then there would be no, um, there'd be nothing for that whole uh, whole of potential to uh, subsist in. Um, that representation of a whole of potential um, implies some sort of support in which the charges in here. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so we're stuck with this um, obstacle uh, where uh, inductive thought runs into its limit uh, and then 
um, we, as we saw earlier, the deductive thinking also runs into its own limit. Um, and, um, and so that we need uh, a mode of thinking that can um, unify or, or pass beyond the, the distinction between the discontinuous and the continuous. Um, and, and this is precisely Simon Doan's uh, thought of the individual. Um, and so he will um, specify uh, a little bit later on that um, any true relation, uh, so relation uh, understood as having the status of being um, a relation is uh, always between a, a continuous term and a discontinuous term, so that um, um, there's uh, this unification of the continuous and the discontinuous in relation, uh, and this is, is underlies the uh, separation between the continuous and the discontinuous. Yeah, there's that passage um, a little bit earlier. Um, where Simon Don separates his method from the dialectical method as he understands it. Um, and, and he argues that um, the synthesis or, or um, the result of transduction um, is uh, in some sense horizontal. It's not uh, something superior to the, the terms united in, in the way that in the dialectical process, the uh, the dialectical synthesis is is ontologically superior to uh, the terms that it, that it joins. That that doesn't mean that there isn't something like a synthesis. Um, so I'd have to go back to that specific passage. Um, but um, he says something like um, the the synthesized it never um, uh, is never completed. The synthesis is never completed um, in the his mode of thinking in the transductive mode of thinking. Um, but there, it, it incorporates the um, the asymmetrical within itself. So it, it incorporates the continuous term and the discontinuous term within itself, but without um, um, uh, without um, sort of going to a higher level in the way that the dialectic is supposed to do. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The only the only thing I was saying is that you you can kind of fall into this linguistic trap. Uh, what I don't think that's necessarily what you were doing, but um, you know, when, when saying synthesis, kind of because you could look at it and be like, okay, allegmatics. Uh, and again, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about this because I was reading that essay where he's saying like, so the in allegmatics is the study essentially of individuation of the individual, but it doesn't. But you could mistake that for then being like, well, if transduction is sort of like the superior method, then therefore the individual is sort of like the higher or preferred term. But as we know from all this reading, like the individual is, it's almost to, the way I can see it is like it's the point at which you can genealogically enter into peeling back all these layers. And so the individual, you know, in that essay, he, he talks about it as he even defines the, the individual as being a kind like the, I think he uses the word internal tension, incompatibility. Uh, it's, it's before he and he and he uses the word supersaturation. Which is what he always uses in, in, in crystal in the crystallizations conversation. So it's interesting of like I, I'm only bringing it up. I'm hoping not to confuse things, but in the sense of we should think of it as you know in that essay as well. He's talking about analogical and analytical science, and he's trying to say that even even though it it's kind of clear that uh, Smondon falls closer to what I've always been arguing that Bergsonian kind of intuition. He's he's critiquing even that model for you know as we just read anything that is 
that purely prioritizes operation over structure or the reverse. It's like you don't get to transduction by because you could because you could do a, an operational kind of reading that is focused exclusively on relation that almost becomes a kind of like postmodernism that would that would be maybe I think a crude and mistaken reading of what Simone is trying to do. And it seems like he's trying to say you can't just because there are flaws with the deductive kind of reasoning to at a certain limit and with inductive reasoning at another limit. It, it's not like these just go out the window like trans. As you say, you can start from an inductive or a deductive thought and arrive at transduction, but they, they don't, nothing cancels each other out. And in fact, that like the milieu and the relation is about, like you said, it's horizontal and it's holding all of the elements together. And you can kind of shift from one to the other to perceive it in a new light, or maybe as you advance along that kind of like transductive process. I, and again, I, I don't think I'm maybe, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm res- arguing against what you were saying. It was just sort of in my head as I'm trying to uh, piece it together. I just thought unifying might sound a little bit kind of like too much, like the kind of philosophy he's criticizing. Yeah, that's a, a helpful um, reminder. I, um, I think he does use the term uh, unifying in uh, other contexts, but it might be um, safer to avoid that, that term for this specific operation of thought that he's talking about here. In the sort of bigger picture, um, what he's what he's talking about um, in this whole uh, chapter has to do with the the um, complementarity um, the the complementarity of the wave and particle depictions of light in particular. What he wants to argue is that um, this complementarity is a result of um, sort of applying the uh, conceptual thinking um, to something that is not thinkable through concepts in the proper sense uh, or in in the sort of restricted sense that he wants to give to the term. Uh, And so the individual or or individuation uh, can't be understood through concepts or conceptual thinking. It it has to be understood through uh, what he sometimes calls intuition. Um, um, But uh, this is not something sort of mysterious and and, uh, distinct from scientific research because he, he thinks we can have a, a science of the individual, or we can produce knowledge of the individual through science. Um, but uh, it has to do with the, the mode of thinking, the way that these representations are, are connected to each other, rather than um, some sort of um, like supernatural faculty of intuition or something like that. Um, but yeah, so just to, all that to say that um, what he wants to do is to um, show how this complementarity is a result of um, sort of a one-sided approach to the individuation process. Um, and each side, each of the complementary um, concepts uh, grasps uh, a part of the reality of the individual, but only one part. Um, and that's why we have to, you have to think of light sometimes as a wave, sometimes as a particle, or, um, uh, and the same thing with uh, electrons will have um, a wave aspect and a, a um, and a particular or corpuscular aspect. Um, but let's go on to the next bit from the top of 128, if uh, someone else would like to read. We find this beginning of a discovery of compatibility between the inductive method and the deductive method, between the representation of the continuous and that of the discontinuous in the introduction of relativist mechanics into the domain of the free electron. 
other means of producing free electrons have been discovered. Uh, and I just want to note that I, I think that's the point of this paragraph is that these are just other ways of producing free electrons. Um, the, the cathodic ray accompanied by the so-called thermionic effect and then the beta decay of radioactive bodies. It was known how to determine the trajectories of electrons in space by noting their points of impact on fluorescent screens or photographic plates capable of being affected by this impact. Wilson's cloud chamber, which has been said that it constituted the most beautiful experiment of the century, made it possible to follow the trajectory of an electrified particle. At the end of the studies carried out by Perrin, Viard, and Lenard, the electron could be represented as a corpuscle, i.e. a very small object that can be localized in space and that obeys the laws of dynamics of the material point. In an electrical field, the electron, which has a negative charge, is submitted to an electrical force. In a magnetic field, when it is in movement, the electron behaves as a small element of a conduction current and is submitted to an electrodynamic type of Laplace force, simultaneously perpendicular to the direction of the magnetic field and to the, uh, the instantaneous direction of movement and it is numerically equal to the vec vectoral product of the electron speed through the magnetic field multiplied by the charge. Under the action of this force, F equals E over C, V times H, the electron's movement occurs like the movement of a, of a material point with a mass of 0.9 times 10 to the negative 29th grams. Uh, Rowland's experiment in 1876 established that uh, displacement of electrical charges produces a magnetic field as if it were a question of a conduction current produced by a generator and a fixed conductor. The inductive value of this discontinuous conception of electricity was particularly revealing in the sense that it made, that it, made it possible to bring the study of the movement of electrons back to the mechanics of the material point a theory which has been considered classical for quite a while. Uh, I think we can go on to the next bit, which is where relativity comes in. Okay. Yeah, I can keep reading a little bit. Um, the new mechanics remained theoretical when it was applied to the bodies, to bodies studied by macrophysics. Relativist mechanics is indeed valid for all material bodies. It had already successfully explained the three phenomena in 10 to the negative 8 that classical mechanics had failed to explain. The theory of relativity gained a lot of momentum when it explained the perihelion of the planet Mercury, which had been noted much earlier. The deviation of sunlight observed during an eclipse confirmed the principle of special relativity. Color changes for moving sources of light led to the same confirmation. However, this theory of relativity, which is a mechanics of extremely rapid movements, could still be contested in the domains of macro, in the domains of mac macrophysics. Uh, speaking uh, about the theory of relativity, relativity, Le Chatelier declared in his work "L'industrie, la science et l'organisation au XXe siècle." Um, quote, similar speculations can interest the philosopher, but shouldn't captivate men of action 
who claim to shape nature and guide its transformations. Unquote. Further on, he adds, quote, today, the probability of seeing the laws of notion and Lavoisier disproved is not even one in a billion. There's therefore madness to be preoccupied with similar eventualities or to speak of them and be distracted by them for one instant. Unquote. Le Chatelier focused his argumentation on the fact that relativist theory only gives different gives results different from those of classical mechanics for bodies animated by speeds above 10,000 kilometers per, spe- per second. Quote, however, on Earth, we do not know how to produce speeds above one kilometer per second, which is the speed of the projectiles of the famous Big Bertha, which is a howitzer cannon, apparently. Um, there is hardly anything save the planet Mercury that possesses possesses sufficient speed to warrant relativistic speculations. Even in this case, the predicted perturbations are so weak that we are still not in agreement of their magnitude. Unquote. Uh, should we stop there? Or... Uh, sure, yeah, we can stop there. I looked up the perihelion of Mercury thing. So apparently this is this has to do with the precession of the um the precession of the orbit of Mercury around the sun um and Mercury has an eccentric orbit which I guess means that it uh the orbit itself changes uh it's more um elliptical I think than than the orbit of other planets and it changes more frequently. But the classical Newtonian um, explanation for the way it changes leaves a certain degree of its actual change unexplained. And that is explained somehow by relativity um, when you take into account the, the... potential well around the sun itself, which slows down the orbit of the planet as it, as it gets closer to the sun. Basically there's a a slight inaccuracy or there's a slight deviation between um, the predicted orbit of Mercury under uh, Newtonian physics um, and uh, the observed orbit of Mercury. There's a slight deviation. um, And, um, uh, Einstein predicted that um, um, that you would be able to observe that, uh, or sorry, he he explained this deviation through um, um, the fact that in relativistic physics you have um, this uh, inverse relationship between um, speed and mass, um, so that. Um, uh, well, sorry, how to explain this? Um, so in the presence of a large mass like the sun, um, you have um, uh, uh, differences in the way that space-time is uh, uh, structured. Um, you have a, a, a well of potential, as uh, as Angus um, posted in the chat. Um, so you have um, basically a, a stretching of, uh, of space-time in the vicinity of this large mass. Um, and, and that means that um, the, um, the, the orbit of Mercury is slightly different than what Newtonian physics would predict. Um, and uh, it's accounted for by relativistic physics. Um, 
And uh, so that image in the chat there shows the the deviation. Um, um, apparently, physics is too spicy for uh, for our ser our uh, server here, so um, we'll have to look for it somewhere else. Um, but uh, yeah, that's sort of the the big picture of what this perihelion of Mercury was, and this was considered um, at the time one of the um, uh, most important confirmations of the relativistic physics, um, um, and. Uh, um, yeah, so, but uh, as, as Simon Don uh, cites this, uh, Le Chatelier, um, who, uh, who says that all this is basically nonsense, uh, it, it doesn't really matter, um, and uh, uh, we shouldn't sort of concern ourselves with uh, all these um, speeds that are, you know, so much greater than anything we can produce. I like the a book for 12 wise men. Right, and then uh, the other another um, confirmation of the theory of relativity was the deviation of light in uh, uh, around uh, an eclipse, um, which uh, is in that uh, that clip that Angus posted. Um, um, so there's um, basically the the idea is that the the ray of light um, coming from a star. Uh, near that's near the sun in a, in our visible um, uh, sphere. Um, so the apparent location of the star is is near um, is near the, the sun. Um, so normally you wouldn't be able to see it, but then when there's an eclipse, you can see this star um, near the sun. Um, and what you find is that the uh, location, the um, apparent location of the star is slightly different from where it should be. Um, so that, and, and this is explained by the light beam uh, traveling from the star to earth is, uh, is deviated by the gravity of the sun. Uh, and this was an, another uh, prediction by uh, Einstein. Um, and so when when this observation was made in the, the early 20th century, it was considered a, a, um, a strong confirmation of relativistic physics. I, I was listening to some podcast about um, about this kind of thing, and they were talking about a relatively recent experiment where it's similar to the um, solar eclipse experiment where they uh, they observed a um, supernova explosion behind a galaxy and it actually like the lens effect created four copies of the same supernova explosion, I think for the, for the same reason, which is interesting. Right. Yeah. There, there's like more complicated versions of uh, the same type of effect through gravitational lensing. So the, the gravity of, uh, of the sun or in this case, a, of a galaxy would be, Sort of having the same effect as a lens uh, on a ray of light, um, so it causes it to uh, to deviate, and and uh, it can produce double images, or, or I didn't even know about quadruple images. Um, but uh, yeah, that's um, another. That's one of the effects that Einstein predicted um, would be a way of, of uh, confirming relativistic physics, and, and that. Uh, disconfirmed uh, Newtonian physics, and and so that's why it was considered um, um, uh, like a sort of decisive experiment at the time. 
Um, and yeah, so we have to we have to sort of this is one of the um, these long paragraphs that Simon Don loves, or or these long developments um, where we don't see the uh, uh, the sort of the point of what he's introducing until you read uh, a page or two into into the development. Um, but he's going to um, argue that within uh, uh, relativistic physics, there's a, a sort of um, it, it sort of um, decenters the the sort of uh, corpuscular theory. Um, um, yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But the idea is that uh, uh, within relativistic physics, you don't have the the idea of a, a corpuscle as a sort of self-contained substance in the way that you did in uh, classical physics. Uh, yeah, and, and so this is. Um, uh, well, 1905 is, is sort of the, the birth of both relativistic physics and quantum mechanics uh, in a couple of different Einstein papers, but um, relativistic physics is, is sort of uh, developed and, and widely accepted much more quickly, and then quantum physics takes more time to develop and to be, uh, to be accepted. Um, yeah, if not for, uh, not for men of action. Um, uh, yeah, that's a nice quote. It's always nice to see people like from a hundred years ago or, or whatever, um, just being completely wrong about things. Uh, it sort of helps, <laughs> helps like put things in perspective. And uh, just in terms of like, as an aside here, just in terms of the uh, practical use of relativity, like satellite TV or, or anything involving satellites is only possible because of relativistic, uh, relativistic physics. Um, it's uh, it's only it's only like if you tried to calculate um, the the motion of satellites and the you know where the signals would end up and so on um, based on Newtonian physics you would end up with the wrong uh, predictions so uh, that's a completely practical use of relativistic physics that of course um, the Chatelier couldn't have known about but uh, it's not just like at the realm of uh, speculation or something like that. Okay, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, I think we stopped at, uh, right, just we're at the second argument on uh, page 129, if someone else would like to read. The second argument is that concerning the transformation of radium into helium, all the scientists that have worked on this problem still have not managed to produce altogether 10 milligrams of this gas. However, considering the millions of tons of material that the industry transforms every day, an exception to Lavoisier's law has never been able to be verified. From a macroscopic and pragmatic point of view, Le Chatelier was perhaps correct. He could seemingly accuse the partisans of relativity of corrupting through their skepticism regarding Newton's law of gravitation and Lavoisier's law of the conservation of elements. The students who were overly inclined to follow the snobs and philosophers declaring that these two fundamental laws of science are nothing but the vestiges of an obsolete past. Just as Aristophanes already accused Socrates of a word that I can't read. <laughs> If someone wants to get that what is that? It's kinologia. There you go. In the clouds, facing the Athenian public who are anxious about the spread of new ideas. Nevertheless, both on earth and in simple assemblages made possible with the physical apparatuses of an established instruction at the time when Le Chatelier rose up against the negation of all good sense for dotting the eyes and clear explanation, there were already bodies animated by speeds above 10,000 kilometers per second, namely electrons in transit in cathodic ray tubes. These corpuscles belong to microphysics due to their dimension, but in a tube that is several dozen centimeters long and 
the energy that can be accumulated at the limits of the secondary winding of a Ruhmkorff coil, it is possible to transmit to them a speed above that of the fastest celestial bodies. Here there is a discovery of magnitudes that in the usual classification of phenomena were not of the same species. A corpuscle 1,836 times lighter than the hydrogen atom behaves like a planet during an experiment that is on the order of magnitude of the human body and that requires a force comparable to the force of our muscle. The mechanics of relativity profoundly modifies the notion of the individual existence of a physical particle. The electron cannot be conceived like an atom was formerly conceived because it rapidly changes place. Ever since the ancient atomist, the atom was a substantial being. The quantity of matter that it constituted was fixed. Mass invariance was an aspect of the substantial invariance of the atom. The atom is the corpuscle that is not modified by the relation in which it is engaged. The compound results entirely from the atoms that constitute it, but these first elements, the primordia rerum, are not modified by the compound that they constitute. The relation remains fragile and precarious. It has no power over the terms. It results from the terms which are not modes of the relation in a way. Uh, yeah, we can stop there. Um, so this is what I was mentioning earlier um, when he he's going to argue that uh, relativistic physics um, modifies the notion of the individual um, because in relativistic physics, mass is relative to, uh, to well, the speed for one thing. So um, as we'll see in the next paragraph, the, uh, the mass of a corpuscle um, or of a, a body in general um, increases as speed approaches the, the speed of light. Um, uh, and uh, uh, th so this is uh, completely um, uh, different from the conception of mass as a, a fixed quantity uh, of a, a substantial element or a substantial atom. Um, so that uh, in classical atomism and, and even up until the end of the 19th century, the idea is that um, the atom is uh, a self-contained substance and it, um, it uh, undergoes these uh, external relations, but those relations don't change its being. Um, whereas in relativistic physics, the relation between entities, uh, so, like the speed of changes what the mass of those entities is. Could you help explain that last sentence um, or this kind of this last paragraph where you're saying the relation remains fragile and precarious. It has no power over the terms. It results from the terms, which are not modes of the relation in any way. I know he's talking about the atomistic sort of conception there, but in, in a very accidental way, and I, I think because I'm just not understanding the terms, that sounds quite similar to the way he talks about um, the importance in transduction of, of having to, the, the, the independence of the operation from the terms, in analogy at least. And so I just, but, but here it's, I'm just trying to not confuse them. Here, is it different because he's saying um, the relation has no power over the terms and it results from them? And so it's not, um, you know, it's not a milieu in the way that he'll later or earlier has talked about things. Um, so I think the difference is, uh, so on the atomistic conception, um, ex relations are purely external to an entities, to the terms related. Um, so you have uh, atoms that have their own uh, particular properties, like mass and whatever other properties uh, that an atom has. Um, and uh, those properties don't change. Uh, they're, they're inherent to the, those atoms. 
and the atoms uh, then secondarily undergo these relationships that um, are, are purely external uh, and form compounds uh, um, and the compound bodies are, are fragile and precarious, as he says, because they're, they're always um, secondary to the atoms themselves. Um, so they, the compound can always be dissolved um, and then the, the atoms sort of return to their um, uh, free state. Um, whereas in uh, uh, Simon Dahl's conception, uh, relation in the true sense is a, a is constitutive of the the beings uh, the being of the terms related, um, so that uh, it's always um, relation has the status of being as he puts it. So that there's always um, uh, uh, an internal um, aspect to relation. So you can't isolate um, a, a substantial term from the relation in which it, it's uh, it inheres. Um, and then the question, uh, Al Dreams, you had about um, the relationship between uh, relativistic physics and the wave-particle duality. Um, yeah, so they're not directly tied uh, to each other. Um, so you can, like, you, for example, you, you can, um, and actually this is a sort of an open problem in physics, is how you relate um, uh, quantum physics with relativity. Um, they're, they're sort of... Um, two separate domains that uh, are each successful in their own sphere, um, but then uh, how you tie them together is uh, not really uh, clear at the moment. Um, um, uh, yeah, so we, we remain agog, um, like uh, in, in the clipping. Um, and yeah, so string theory and other uh, um, approaches to um, unification uh, have been proposed, but there's, there, nothing has been sort of um, considered to be uh, um, uh, successful so far. Um, there are, one of the issues is the, uh, the ability to uh, perform some of these experiments is we're sort of like running into limits in terms of the energy needed to perform some of these experiments um, uh, that would be able to differentiate between different um, accounts of the relationship between quantum physics and, and relativistic. Yeah, there, there's a number of different approaches which are sort of like head-hurtingly complicated. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't know a lot about that um, area of physics. Um, but yeah, it's definitely um, an, an open problem how to, how to connect um, relativity and quantum mechanics. Okay, so let's go on to the next uh, couple paragraphs. With the electron envisioned by the theory of relativity, the mass of the corpuscle is variable according to speed, formulated by Lorentz's law as m equals m0 over square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared, where m0 is the mass of the electron at rest, i.e. 0.9 by 10 to the minus 27 grams, and c is the speed of light in vacuum, and v the speed of the corpuscle under consideration. The dynamics of relativity therefore presents us with a corpuscle which cannot be characterized by a rigorously fixed mass representing the substantiality of an unchangeable matter, a support unmodified by accidental, <clears throat> by accidental relations, but which also cannot even receive an upper limit for a possible increase of mass and consequently for the energy conveyed and the transformations able to be produced in other bodies by this particle. The whole set of principles of atomistic thought that seeks to get the inductive clarity of corpuscular structures is put into question by Lorentz's law. Indeed, from the point of view in which we are situated to consider each particle in itself, 
it has already produced a profound change since the fundamental characteristics like mass and the quantity of transported energy must be conceived as not having an upper limit. Mass tends toward infinity when the speed V tends towards the limit C, which measures the speed of light in vacuum. The individual no longer has this essential characteristic of the atom of the ancients, which is that of being strictly limited by its dimension, its mass, and its form, and which is consequently endowed with a rigorous identity through time, an identity that makes it eternal. But the theoretical consequence of this change in the conception of the physical individual is truly even more important if the mutual relation between particles is considered. If under certain conditions a particle can acquire an energy that tends toward infinity, there is no longer a limit to the possible action of particle on another particle or a group of other particles, however large that group may be. This continuity of particles no longer imposes the finite characteristic of possible modifications. The smallest element of a totality can receive as much energy as all the other parts combined. The essentially egalitarian nature of atomism cannot be conserved. The very relation of part to whole is transformed because the relation of part to part is completely modified from the moment that one part can exert on the other parts an action stronger than all, all the other elements of the whole taken together. Since each physical individual is potentially unlimited, no individual at any moment can be conceived as safe from the possible action of another individual. This mutual isolation of atoms, which for ancient atomists was a guarantee of substantiality, cannot be considered absolute. The vacuum, an invaluable condition of energetic isolation and structural independence, which was for Lucretius the very guarantee and condition of the individuality of atoms and their eternity, can no longer ensure this function, because distance is only a condition of independence if action through contact alone is effective. In this substantialistic atomism, shock can modify the state of an atom's movement or rest, but not its own characteristics like mass. However, if mass varies with speed, a shock can modify the mass of a particle by modifying its speed. The accidental, totally fortuitous encounter affects substance. Passivity and activity are merely two symmetrical aspects of energy exchanges. The actual or potential passivity of substance is as essential as its potential or actual activity. Becoming is integrated into being. Relation, which contains the energy exchange between two particles, includes the possibility of a veritable exchange of being. Relation has the value of being because it is allogmatic. If the operation remained distinct from the structure that would be its unmodifiable support, the substantialism of the particle could attempt to account for energy exchanges by a modification of the mutual rapport of particles, thus leaving the respective characteristics of each particle unmodified. But since every modification of the relation of one particle to the others is also a modification of its internal characteristics, there is no substantial interiority of the particle. Here still, the veritable physical individual, as in the case of the crystal, is not concentric with the limit of interiority that constitutes the substantial domain of the individual, but is on the very limit of the being. This limit is actual or potential relation. An immediate belief in the interiority of beings qua individual no doubt comes from the intuition of the body proper, which seems, in the situation of a man reflecting, to be separate from the world, separated from the world by a material sheath that offers a certain consistency and delimits a closed domain. Uh, I'll finish this paragraph. In reality, a suitably deep psychobiological analysis would reveal that the relation to the external milieu for a living being is not merely spread out on the external surface of itself. Through the mediation that it constitutes between the exterior milieu and the being, the notion of interior milieu, which was formulated by Claude Bernard for the uh, necessities of biological investigation, indicates on its own that the substantiality of the being 
cannot be confused with its interiority, even in the case of the biological individual. The conception of a physical interiority of the elementary particle manifests a subtle and tenacious biologism that was apparent even in the most theoretically rigorous mechanism of the ancient atomists. With the appearance of the theory of relativity on the plane of the current physical experiment, this biologism gives way to a more rigorously physical conception of individuation. Let us note, however, that if the possibility for an increase in the mass of a corpuscle had a limit, we could return to a substantialistic atomism simply modified by a logical dynamism. Leibniz's monad is still essentially an atom because its stages of development and involution are regulated by a rigorous internal determinism of the concrete individual notion. It doesn't matter that the monad possesses within itself a recapitulation of the modifications of the monads of the whole universe as a microcosm in the form of little perceptions. In fact, from the point of view of the causality of modifications, the monad only draws its modifications from itself and remains absolutely isolated in becoming. The limits of its successive determinations are rigorously fixed by the system of universal compossibility. On the contrary, physical in, the physical individual, which is thought according to relativity, has no limits of its own defined once and for all due to its essence. It is unbounded. Because of this, the physical individual cannot be determined by a principle of individuation comparable to what Leibnizian dynamics assigns to it. The limit and consequently the relation of the individual is never a boundary. It belongs to being itself. Yeah, there's a lot in this uh, in this one long paragraph. Um, so uh, the first bit here is, um, uh, so in this equation, you can see that um, as V um, approaches C, then the, um, the whole equation um, uh, approaches uh, M zero over one, um, uh, sorry, uh, the the part underneath the uh, um, the square root approaches uh, one minus one, so uh, it approaches zero, um, and then the uh, so as it approaches zero, it can never actually reach zero, but as it approaches zero, uh, that means that the the total mass can increase uh, uh, without limit, um, so that. Uh, what this shows, uh, according to Simondon, is that um, um, the uh, the particle can't be understood as something uh, substantial and self-contained anymore. Um, so even when we're just talking about a single particle, um, it it doesn't have these uh, inherent properties like mass anymore. Uh, its mass it depends on uh, on its uh, on its speed, um, and then even further, when you introduce more than one particle, uh, you find that um, through the interaction of one particle with another, um, it um, uh, you can uh, one particle can change the mass of the other particle by changing its speed. Um, so the what what is um, what looks like a, an external relationship. Um, or purely accidental um, uh, uh, contingent part of the history of a particle can change what uh, would seem to be its inherent properties like its mass. Yeah, I'm going to need to reread this uh, section before next week because uh, it feels so... Like, I mean, he obviously establishes it by the end, but um, even when he's still talking about the you know relativity proper... It's like he's already starting to set up these axioms of 
you know, this discontinuity of particles doesn't impose the finite characteristic of possible modifications. The smallest element of a totality can receive as much energy as all the other parts combined. Like, I just, I, I really like that he's bringing this back to, I guess, just what we started the the book with. Um, and yeah, just just as we were saying that the all the stuff we were talking about earlier with the Kleinemann and the early atomists, it's coming back and he's, and just the statement there where he says passivity and activity are just two symmetrical aspects of energy exchanges. You know, I, I don't have a, an interesting thought here. I just love that uh, it feels like the the science and the philosophy aspects are, are really coming together in this section. Yeah, I think uh, Angus posted in the chat about how this, um, this section um, really shows how um, contemporary science or, or 20th century science um, really makes it impossible to hold on to the traditional atomistic picture, which um, with modifications was, was sort of um, the default position of most scientists up until the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of atoms as, as these self-contained substances um, um, and then everything else being made up of these atoms. Uh, um, and uh, so we see here that relativity to start with will make that harder to maintain. And then even further, when we get to the quantum mechanics stuff, um, it, it becomes uh, uh, even harder to, to maintain that picture. I think the application to, to Leibniz is really interesting. It seems like what he's saying is that the the lack of an upper limit for um, the mass of a particle. Um, I mean, we could see Leibniz's uh, monads as being in a way extremely large because they they perceive the entire compossible universe in the form of these uh, uh, little perceptions, but they're limited by the idea of compossibility and incompossibility. So, you know, not even like Epicurean atomism, but even um, Leibniz's kind of strange version of atomism is impossible um, or is inconsistent with, uh, with contemporary science. And interestingly, I think that compossibility and incompossibility are parts of Leibniz's system that Deleuze uh, rejects. Yeah, I think um, the Leibniz bit, so the, the reason why um, Simon Dole, um thinks that the, the lack of limit to um, um, the energy that a corpuscle can, can have or to the mass that a corpuscle can have. Um, so uh, on Leibniz's picture, each monad contains within itself the, uh, uh, the sort of self-regulation of the entire universe, right? So each monad is like a, a a clock um, set up um, uh, independently of all the others. They, they, they don't have windows, uh, as he says. So there's no real um, uh, effect of one monad on, on another. But they, they, the internal um, evolution of the monad uh, is, uh, is set up in such a way that um, it sort of replicates the rest of the universe. And what looks like um, causation of one monad onto another one it's really just the internal evolution of both of those monads in, in the synchronized manner. Um, and uh, 
Um, so what, what this uh, absence of a limit of the mass shows, uh, according to Simonon, is that um, you can't, um, there can't be anything like this internal principle uh, governing the evolution of a monad uh, because it, uh, it would still be limited. Um, uh, uh, that, so the evolution of the monad would have to be uh, limited in some way uh, uh, whereas the uh, mass and energy of a particle are unlimited um, as speed approaches the speed of light. Um, and so you can't have something like this uh, uh, sort of internal governance by the, the principle of the, monad, uh, the individual concept of the, of the monad. I've noticed too that there's the whole, I mean, I love this bit about the limit you know, when he's saying if you take that notion of the limit when it comes to, like, biological being, and it kind of commonsensically, you can look at the, an idea of interiority in, like, the body of the person who is doing observation and all that. But he brings it back again but at the end when he's saying the limit is not a boundary. It belongs to the being itself. So it kind of, I think it brings us back to just, again, the very start of the book and thinking about the, the limit as a productive point that continues to generate further becomings and further individuations. So there's never actually a hard sort of line between inside and outside or interiority and exteriority. Like interiors, interiorities and exteriorities are something that are produced um, in the process of, of an individuation. And they're, they're like one of the phases, you know, so when he talks about, again, in, in the other essay I'm thinking about where he's, you're talking about you have to think of the individual as a state as one of the possible states you know in the primordial so-called state or in the priest state there isn't a division between interiority and exteriority but once it once there uh, becomes one or a potentially observable one it doesn't mean that that is sort of that's all there is that the, that interiority and exteriority them itself is produced and that there could still be future sort of developments afterwards um uh, and, you know, at least in the crystal example that with the idea of you know the end part of where the crystal develops can develop further crystals but then even in the you know the modulator examples with the ca with the tubes and, and the electricity which obviously I'm, I'm less uh, I understand less but you know when he was talking about the continuous modifications that, that the modulator is able to do I feel like these are sort of the the elements he's bringing back with um, trying to reintroduce the idea of the limit not as something that's actually actually a limit but is uh you know part of of being and therefore part of becoming yeah i think the bit about the um the interiority is interesting um because this is another instance of uh simon Don trying to sort of um retrace the steps of uh, a mode of thinking back to this sort of um fundamental image or, or primordial image that it's drawing from and and so he argues that um Atomism is drawing from the uh, uh, the experience of um, one's own body as something like a, 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 an envelope around an interiority, and uh, and then he argues uh, this is just sort of an aside in, at this point because we're we're still talking about physical individuation. But then he he brings up this uh, this concept that uh, Claude Bernard had introduced. Um, of the interior milieu, so that um, within a, a living individual, um, the there is a something like a milieu um, 
um, so that you can't just sort of draw a boundary around the living individual and say everything inside this boundary is um, is uh, interior and then everything outside the boundary is exterior um, because even within the boundary, there's already a, a sort of interior exteriority, if that makes sense. Um, uh, so that um, even in the case of the, of the biological individual or the living individual, uh, you can't... Um, you can't just sort of hold on to this substantialism about uh, the interiority. Um, so the the sort of lived experience of um, being uh, an individual with a body and uh, and the having this boundary around yourself um, that experience is misleading uh, when it comes when we sort of try to apply it to the uh, the notion of an atom that would have this interiority in the same way. Um, so I think we're about at time. Uh, so we'll pick up from uh, halfway down 132, or, or I guess close to the bottom of 132 next time. Um, so thank you everyone for uh, for showing up for your questions and comments and everything. Um, and uh, see you all next week. <laughs>